people just don't say things or they just don't do certain things because they're shy or they think, what will other people think of me? They just do stuff and, and don't think about what other people are doing. And you'll probably get it just because no one else did it. No one else asked. Welcome to the latest episode of the Live Into Your Brilliance podcast, the place where we shine a light on the innate brilliance of the human condition and blow up illusions that get in our way. More often than not, you have your usual duo with you today, me, Al Kenny, and the man from Boston, Mark Billows Bilby. How are you doing today, Mr. Bilby? I'm good, my friend. I've, uh, I'm just coming off a high of having the most amazing week. Um, I had three hours sleep last night um, uh, because I had to get our special guest in Boston this week to the airport bright and early. But we, um, a shameless plug, uh, particularly to any South Africans uh, listening to this podcast um, who are eligible to vote. Um, we we uh, hosted... Uh, the the enigmatic uh, Musi Mamani uh, in Boston uh, this week for two days, and and uh, and uh, he was he dazzled uh, the good and the great uh, of Boston, and met all sorts of wonderful leaders from the black community. Uh, met all sorts of wonderful leaders from the private and the public sector, uh, made lots of wonderful new friends and was just an absolute delight um, to have in Boston. So we ran him off his feet for, for two days. Um, I think he was glad to be rid of us uh, when we dropped him at the airport early this morning, um, but we had, a, we had a wonderful time. So it was a real privilege to... Um, to uh, to hang out with a, a man who espouses the the values and the ideals of of the guy over my shoulder, Nelson Mandela, and so um, it was uh, it was a great privilege. So yeah, I've had a very busy week, um, but super chuffed to be here, and I'm super chuffed to have uh, you and Cameron with us. So looking forward to this one. Cool man, that sounds that does sound like an amazing week, and uh, I'll have to learn more about it when uh, when we chat offline at some point that sounds that uh, sounds very cool but like you say we have our guest with us and so we shan't waste another second and we'll uh, get you and into the conversation um, by way of introduction uh, so Ewan is the CEO and co-founder of Willow which is a it's a really cool video interviewing platform used across the globe. Like uh, it's actually incredible how many companies are taking advantage of of this way of kind of um, thinking about bringing people into their companies. Um, but it's fair to say, and like myself and Billows, we've known you in for a couple of years now. Well, actually, maybe a bit longer. But it's fair to say that you and uh, he caught the entrepreneurial bug early. He started his first business, a web design company, when he was fifteen. Um, he's also successfully created Car Money, which was a car finance company, uh, a marketing agency for supporting online startups. Like, um, yeah, I think this guy's he's he's got the bug, and so there's lots in his story that I'm excited to hear about. He's also a husband and a father. He's a great all-round guy. Um, he really purposeful about um, creating an amazing life and, and having an impact on the world. Um, and I'm super excited for him to share his story um, because it contains a hidden gem as far as I'm concerned. And, and I'm going to allow you to tell us more about it. Um, but Ewan's also dyslexic. And uh, him and his co-founder, Woody, um, both have dyslexia. And it, it's such a rich, uh, it's rich ground for blowing up illusions because um, both you and, and Woody and, and what they've got to, uh, how they point in, in that direction is an inspiration for um, lots of people. So without further ado, uh, Ewan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, guys. I'm excited to be here and chat a little bit more about, I guess, yeah, what I've been up to and, and that backstory as well is, is great. Thank you for the the overview. Um, yeah, it's been it's been quite an early an early start to my entrepreneurial career. 
it was uh, yeah, f- 15 years old, starting a web design agency when websites were were not really websites as we know them today. They were just like flyers almost. Um, but yeah, I started building those in my bedroom uh, on like an old computer that my dad gave me. So yeah, it's been a been an interesting ride over the past few years. And I think as well, I'm just going to mention now because if my if my partner's listening to this, she'll love that you call me a husband because we're not yet married. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I won't. We won't say anything about that twenty quid you slipped me last time I saw you to weave that in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm no, excited to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, it's going to be great. Well, look, you and um, I think you know that like the the premise behind these is a is an exploration around um, what makes human beings brilliant and and blowing up those illusions. But we always start in the same place, which is, um, you know, your story and and from like as you would tell it and and any of the like what are the biggest insights you've seen along your path that you want to share and then. We will see where the conversation goes from there. We'll, uh, you know, um, start wherever feels right for you to start, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Um, yeah, I think I'm going to go. I'm going to write back to the very beginning um, of, I guess, you know, the kind of 15 year old starting a business type thing because I think that's an interesting place to start. And it starts really with my parents both running businesses. So both my parents ran businesses um, in their 30s. They started. Like early, early thirties, late twenties. Um, my mom ran two businesses, and my dad started one business around that same time. So I didn't really know anything else, which I think, looking back, was was quite interesting. I was not aware of you know people's parents going to you know driving to work and doing like a nine to five job and having bosses and having to like get their holidays signed off and things and getting a paycheck at the end of each month. It was, uh, that was like obviously not the, the norm when you've got two parents that, that run their own businesses. So I just, I just saw them as like, you know, the, the kind of the parent, the, the, the thing that the, you know, parents do. Um, and it was only like later in life that I looked back and I realized how different it could have been. I mean, for example, we, we never really thought about, you know, going on holidays or, um, you know, they didn't have to like phone up a boss when I was, sick off school or you know needing to go to the dentist or whatever they they were the bosses and they just took you there or whatever it was so different um but then i think as well that obviously whatever they were saying to me when i was a kid led to me thinking i need to like start my own thing i need to do my own stuff because that's just what you do and that's that's like how you earn money and i actually there's a piece of the story which i never really talk about which is I started cutting people's grass in my street when I was 12 years old. And I started invoicing people when I was 12 years old. And like that, when I looked back, I was like, how the fuck did you even know how to like create an invoice? How did you even know what the word invoice meant? You know, if I was, if I said to my friends in school, I have just like sent out three invoices to people, they'd be like, well, what's an invoice? <laughs> like, how does that work? That's really weird. Um, but that was, that was normal. I basically, I wrote them all a letter, got like, you know, opened up. Microsoft Word 95 or whatever it was, and typed out a letter and then, you know, put how much they owed me, put my bank details on. And it was like a little, you know, a kid's bank account, like that your parents had to set up. And then they would transfer money into that and they would pay me each week. So I was like, I was earning like 10 pounds per garden every week. And that was when I was like 12 years old, which actually adds up to be quite a lot when you're not, when you're 12, you're, when you're 12, you don't really buy much. So it was just going into my bank account. I'm cutting the grass. I'm only doing it for like seven months of the year, but invoicing them for 12 months. So that was a pretty fun start to things. And that, that really got me excited because, you know, I'm, I'm doing a thing that I quite like doing and I'm getting paid for it. And, and that was quite kind of like a, I guess a very early validation, you know, not really at that point ever being self aware of this concept, just doing it and going with the flow, you know, seeing my parents do it, thinking that that's normal just to do things and get, you know, to earn some money. So. Yeah, then fast forward, go to university, still running this, this web development agency in university, which is great. So paid for a bit of my, uh, drinking and, uh, eating crappy food and things, which was great. And I didn't have to think, you know, I didn't have to stick out the, the big student loans that a lot of my friends were taking out because of that, which was great. Um, and it was fun. Like I actually really enjoyed, you know, going to lectures and then 
coming home and doing work for money and then going out and spending that money on alcohol. It was quite a, quite a good way of doing things. I thought it was a bit of a break um, from, from the norm that everyone else was doing. And yeah, that then, you know, I graduate at that point and then lo and behold, end up in another startup. And this is a startup that's essentially a year old when I joined. So I joined as, as like a marketing person in the startup and it's selling cars. So selling like, um, basically through dealerships and network of dealerships. They have at this point got one dealership. Over the eight years I spend there, we end up with 13 dealerships. We go from, you know, like a hundred staff to over a thousand staff and turnovers, turnovers north of 500 million. And that was a really cool journey to see. Um, partly because I, I didn't plan on ever being there. It was just a, I basically graduated 2010, so just after the financial crash of 2008. And it's funny, we were chatting about it in the office of the day. When you're a student, you aren't really aware of obviously what's going on in the outside world. And when we were students in university, we weren't aware of the financial crash or how bad it was. Um, like you obviously heard about it in the media, but you weren't living it. You didn't really experience any of that. You weren't being made redundant or anything. So it was, it was a bit of a strange bubble that you live in. And then obviously it gets 2010 and we started all looking for jobs and there wasn't any jobs and everything that we've been told about, you know, going to one of the, the big four in the UK and everyone, you know, trying to get these jobs, there wasn't any jobs in the big four. And that was a really strange reality um, that no one prepared you for. But uh, luckily the startup was hiring and that was very unusual, not only for a company to be hiring, but startup to be hiring. And it was a funded startup and it was great. It was, it was, uh, it was a really interesting insight into how to take a company from really zero to, to 100 and in quite a short space of time, right? Like eight years to go from being very tiny, you know, one location to, to you know, over 10 locations, opening one every, you know, six months to a year and having to, you know, hire, like not hiring one person at a time, hiring like 30, 40 people in one go and training them all up in one foul swoop is, is quite cool to experience and see. And, and I got, I, I got a lot of experience from that, that again, not being very self-aware during that whole period, just learning loads because you had to and, and doing it on the job, which was fun. And then a couple of other startups after that, but they were all quite short stints. So like one and a half, two years, one and a half, two years. And during those short stints, quite quickly realized I, I really did enjoy the startups. Like the, the, I suddenly became quite self-aware that startups was exciting it wasn't just going to work every day that was exciting it was the startup part that i really enjoyed of like building something from nothing and getting paid for it as well that's like a really interesting validation point isn't it like you you said you can talk about you know going to a job and getting paid a paycheck but when somebody pays you in a startup that's a completely different thing they're not paying your salary they're paying for the thing that you've made and i find that a really interesting uh kind of validation of, of whatever you're doing so that leads us to willow today and, and Willow today is is really a, a culmination of all of those previous startups and previous experiences. The company Willow was really founded off the back of me not really being very happy with the way that people got access to jobs or got access to employment. When you think about any of the startups that you you know you see or you hear about or that I was in, like trying to find the right people for a startup can be the difference between make or break. And um, like we talk about loads of stuff that startups do and there's loads of groups that I'm in and, you know, people are chatting about like, oh, make sure you get your legals right. Make sure you get your, you know, get the right accountants, get the right board together, you know, get the, get the product right. All that stuff is kind of like insignificant when you think about the real main success factor, which is the people in the startup. And, you know, one wrong egg in a startup of five people can fuck the whole startup. And it's insane that, that that can have such a huge impact. Until you're like 30, 40 people even in the startup, one role person in that organization can blow up the whole thing. And when I when I look back, I was like, hang on a second, we're trying to introduce all of these, we're trying to find and introduce all of these people that can make or break this company. And we're doing it basically by the seat of our pants. We're getting like them to send us in a CV. We're then just scanning through the CV and we're going, yeah. They've gone to like a university that I recognize. I can pronounce their name. 
it looks like they're in the same sort of age range as me because I'm looking at when they graduated. And yeah, I kind of like the sound of that CV. Let's speak to them and interview them based on nothing else. Then you speak to them. You've probably got half an hour to chat to them. Then they leave. And then you have to decide whether you're going to have this person in your organization for like the rest of that organization's life, potentially, and then being a make or break for the organization. And I just thought it was such a broken process. The whole hiring process just seemed to, you know, blew my mind that that was how we did it. And so that was where Willow was born. I said she wanted to help employers and candidates see each other and communicate with each other on a human kind of relationship based, um, level playing field. And, um, you throw COVID into the mix because Willow was founded over COVID and suddenly COVID open, opens up this opportunity to do hiring at scale, but remotely. And suddenly the whole, like the whole way that we think about our hiring pools and where our talent can come from just explodes. And suddenly it's the whole globe and you're like, you don't actually need to, to even have country as a factor anymore when you're hiring. You just need to think about the best person. So that was, that was a sort of a bit of a flywheel a moment there when, when COVID suddenly flipped on its head and said, Hey, you can hire anyone anywhere. And it works like PS it works because companies are doing it. We did it for like three years. Every company in the world had remote workers and lots and lots of them did really well. And they did well regardless of the fact it was remote. So like remote was a big tick box. And, and today that's essentially what we just continue doing. We essentially, you know, allow candidates to record those preset questions in their own time on video and employers can then watch them back and make that human connection, which I just felt was always missing from the, the CV or the resume. And, and it still is today. You know, unfortunately, so many employers are still asking for CVs and resumes. Candidates are still sending them out like, you know, like dollar notes or like currency to get access to jobs. And we're coming in and trying to change that. And, and we're doing it. You know, you mentioned at the start there, every country around the world, all 195. UN recognized countries interviewed with Willow last year, a candidate in one of those countries, which is insane. And the employers are in 150 countries. So huge, huge reach and a huge opportunity to change the, the way that people get access to jobs and make it more humane, which, you know, when I go back to like all of the things that I spoke about in the kind of earlier parts of my career, it starts to kind of make sense and a lot of it ticks a lot of the boxes. And which is exciting. So I guess, yeah, that, that's probably where I'm starting from. Pretty amazing. My, my first question, Ewan, is at what point, having been a serial entrepreneur and witnessed startups, uh, founded startups, at what point did you become self-aware and say, I actually, beyond making money and, and beyond kind of the thrill of starting something and experiencing the, the love of having somebody buy your widget um, and, and basically launching an idea from a page uh, into, in, into reality and getting paid for it and the thrill of that. At what point did you have the self-awareness where you were like, I want to change the world. Like I want to, I want to have an impact and make money. Yeah. It's an interesting question. And I think it, it probably goes back to, to the, I would say it's probably a lot to do with the internet. I got the internet quite early on. My dad's company was a software company. So they had, we had internet in the house quite early in the nineties and it was like a proper old school kind of slow internet, but it was really cool to be able to see the world was just to the other side of the screen. I, I remember that really, really clearly. Like the, one of the earliest things I did was I used to like check the weather on like, on the, on like websites. I was like, what's the weather like in like India today? Or what's the weather like in Florida today? And that for me was like the very early seeds of like, the the world is just through that screen. It's just on the other side. And I'm in this small town in Scotland and I'm actually able to see the weather there. And then I'm able to like see a webcam there and it might be really blurry and shitty, but I can actually see what's happening there right now. And that was like really early seeds of like, holy shit, there's, there's actually a potential opportunity for any one of us to, 
to do stuff outside of these four walls and outside of this this like country, you can actually do that right now. You know, I can send an email to someone. I remember really early on as well, like nineties again, you didn't really buy anything online. <laughs> I remember this is so dorky, but I really wanted a, a sheepskin rug for my room. And uh, I was like 10 years old or something. I, I saw like sheepskin rugs on people's floors. I thought it was a nice thing to do. <laughs> I remember buying a sheepskin rug online from Australia. And it was like a, you know, a, an Australian sheep. And it had obviously been skinned and stuff for its skin. And I remember like buying it online. And this was like the first thing I'd ever bought online. I don't think my parents knew what was going on. They were like, this is weird. Like, people don't do this. And I bought this thing online. <laughs> like about a month later, it turned up. And that was like my first e-commerce purchase. And again, I'm like, holy shit, I can actually just like do stuff by sitting at my desk. And things happen. They, things come to me. And I don't even need to leave this room. And I, that was uh, that was like definitely some early seeds of, of like the world just being there. It's like you can touch it. And then, yeah, over time, start to go on holidays and stuff and, and do like traveling and just really find it. I find it fascinating that there's like, you know what I always find really interesting is that right now, People are doing stuff in other countries at different times of the day, right now, everywhere. Or like, I always think it's fascinating. You know, when you go to like a country and you spend like a week there and then you leave and then you think when you get home, those people are doing that thing right now while I'm sitting here. They continue doing that. They continue living in that different place. And I find that quite fascinating as well that, you know, we we only really see our four walls or our like tiny little booth that we're sitting in the side but everything else continues and I find that so fascinating and then like obviously we, we do video calls like this and you can actually reach other people through the screen so that was early stages for sure um, I'm going to touch on the self-awareness thing because this is something that probably I've never really thought about before but when when you mentioned it there like when when did I become self-aware and when I when I became self-aware it's actually quite early on my self-awareness quite early on came from being quite an anxious person And I was really anxious when I was younger. I think I drank a lot of coffee, which was probably a very bad idea as well when I was really young. Like when I was in school, I used to drink coffee in the morning and that was not a good idea for anxiety. But um, I was quite an anxious person when I was younger. And one of my coping mechanisms was to put myself in like the outer body. So see myself through, you know, a a third person. Um, Because when when you're in an anxious position, it's really easy to like be anxious in the skin and in this body. But when you put yourself outside and you look in from outside, you're like, this isn't an anxiety situation. Like you're fine. You're safe. You're not like, you don't, you don't look anxious. You're not doing anxious things. Um, so I, I used to put myself in like this third or outer body quite a lot, particularly like through university. Um, cause I always, I always remember like thinking I look really anxious. People are thinking I'm anxious. And then you would go out to your body and you'd be like, nobody knows you're anxious. You're just like sitting there <laughs> being anxious, like internally. So I was like really practicing that quite a lot. And that was the, that was really early um, self-awareness. I think it's interesting. You get taught like a lot of that. If you like read like CBT kind of therapy stuff, they often talk about in CBT doing a third person looking at you. I think there's a lot of, in a lot of like trauma research as well around that. Like if you have trauma experiences, being that, you know, looking in from outside can, it can really help the situation. And for me, it was definitely around like early anxieties, which helped then get rid of the anxiety, uh, which is really cool. I don't have that anymore. Um, thankfully, but yeah, that, that was probably like the self-awareness really early on. Um, and then that just built and built and built. And, you know, we speaking to Al about it recently that self-awareness, and being intentional has just become a thing that I've just been building and building. I think that was probably the early stages of it. Mm-hmm. I um, I love that. I love that. I love your wisdom at such a young age. Like to, like to. It's like we uh, probably said before. Like we know how perfectly we're made, even if we don't know that we know it. And it strikes me that like you, you were tuned into that capability to see your humanness but from a, a an entirely different perspective like bill has always says like he calls it the lazy boy of our awareness lazy boy of our consciousness is it is that what you say billows yeah yeah lazy boy of our consciousness um i wanted to i i there was something you said about when you were younger as well though in in the context of awareness you know when 
you were 12 and you were like, I'm also quite impressed with the fact that you were managing to get all these people to pay 10 pounds per garden. You know, that's, that's, that sounds like you are selling a, either you are selling a premium service or you were doing a great job of just commanding a premium price. But you, um, you said something about awareness. You said, oh, I probably wasn't self, uh, you said something like, like it wasn't self-awareness. So you weren't aware, you were just doing it. And it struck me that there was probably something that wasn't in your awareness that somehow gets conditioned into the vast majority of people, which stops them being entrepreneurial. And I was just curious about, like, what is it that you didn't know at that age that maybe so many people have in their awareness that stops them? And I'm curious if you've got something that you kind of point to and say, well, you know, most people that do grow up perhaps in families with a traditional setup, you know, parents working nine to five and so on, what is it that they get conditioned to believe that was absent for you. So it was just like, well, this is just what you do. You send invoices at 12 and you get out and you, you make it. Can, can you touch back? Can you connect with what it was that you didn't know that was great to not know because it allowed you to just be free and go and do those, um, do those things that you did? Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And uh, I have an answer for that because as you were talking, it just suddenly sprung into my mind that I didn't know what normal was. So there's like a, there's a status quo or a normal. And when I was a kid, I didn't have that status quo or that normal. So like, I, I sometimes look back and I'm like, I was like, I was like an old man in like a young person's body. I was like doing like old people things, but I didn't know that I was doing old people weird things, like buying a sheepskin rug from Australia. I think it was like over a hundred pounds and stuff. It was a really expensive rug. And like, that's just, you know, kids don't do that kind of stuff. Or like, you know, when you talk about the gardening thing, I remember really clearly, I, I cleaned, like, you know, I, uh, I got like a pressure washer and cleaned this, this one of my neighbor's driveways once. And I added on like an extra 30 quid to their invoice that week. But I like, did that before I even invoiced them and then wrote them a really nice letter saying, Hey, your driveway was like really messy. So I thought I'd clean it. Just added a little bond to your invoice, got like 40 quid instead of 30, instead of a tenner. Did a nice thing for them. And that was like a little like weird upsell that I just did. And I kept doing that over and over again. I would like clean their, clean their gardens or clean their gutters or something random that just sprang to my mind and just start upselling these people. But I, like, I guess I didn't know anything else. So that was just normal things to do. And I think. That is probably a bit of a hack that certain families and certain upbringings can give kids. If you are like not really sure or aware of what society wants you to do, you just kind of go rogue and just do things. And those things hopefully work out. And you probably do lots of random things that don't work out. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the reason I think I can, I can see that as well quite clearly is that my mum in particular was really like just went against the grain or against the status quo with everything. And she had like an amazing confidence to do it. You know, like she would, you know, like people just don't say things or they just don't do certain things because they're, they're shy or they think, what will other people think of me for doing that? She would just do it. Like she just randomly go up and, you know, ask people for stuff. And obviously when you ask for things, you get things. So I saw that quite, quite early on. So, just do stuff and, and don't think about what other people are doing and you'll probably get it just because no one else did it no one else asked and that that rings true all the way through entrepreneurship doesn't it? that you're gonna have to go against the grain you're gonna have to do weird things like and i say that they're weird i'm not really thinking they're weird but i'm saying weird in the context of like society that they're they're weird because people look in and think they're weird you know for example here's a good example of building willow willows willow i used to go every saturday morning to Starbucks and just speak to people about what we were building. Like, I never even told anyone I was doing that because I thought people were saying that was a really weird thing to do when you're like 27 years old. Who gets off at like 9 a.m. and goes to Starbucks and just chats to strangers for two hours and buys them coffees? But that was obviously part of the building of Willow and I just did it. And, and I think a lot of that goes back to, yeah, if, if you're looking for, if you're looking for something that's, maybe being beneficial or, or a bit of a hack, 
in early childhood, it's just not having any real status quo or normality. Um, and I think, yeah, it's definitely, it's still true of me today. I, I like to do random things. I love that because, I mean, one of the things I'd love to blow up there is this concept of normal. It's just like like that. Like I just love to shove a giant stick of dynamite up its ass and just light it because that is, it is like such an illusion. And, you know, what, what I love is, and I think what you're pointing to so beautifully there is when people fall into this illusion of what is normal, like what is convention or, you know, what, what, what is expected. Um, you immediately sit on the innate creativity, the box that should be wide open. You, you kind of, you, you, you trap this innate brilliance and you sit firmly on top of it and every now and then you, you feel this kind of punch underneath your seat and you're like, what the hell is that? And then you, but you continue to sit on it and, and only when you see what you're meant to see at some point and, and you were fortunate never to ever have sat on that creativity which, and, and lock it in a box. But then you jump off the box and it springs open. You're like, oh my God, it's been here all the time. It's right. It's, it's, it's always been a part of me. The, the innate brilliance has always been there. I've just suppressed it or haven't had access to it or I just haven't seen it. And like one, one, one thought that I had, uh, the insight that I had was when you were talking was uh, this, this amazing uh, Indian computer scientist called uh, Sugata Mitra. I don't know if you've heard of this guy, but I think you'd love him. And he did this amazing experiment called the hole in the wall. And this is like late uh, 1990s. And he, he, he put uh, a computer uh, in like a little wall kiosk in a slum in Delhi and and just and the kids were allowed you know the street urchins uh, were just allowed to to use it for free and i mean these are people who can't even speak english um and 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 they they had access to the internet and they could download whatever they wanted to and access whatever they wanted to and it, irrespective of their social economic uh, religious cultural background like and their inability to read some of the stuff that was all in English, uh, you know, some of the things they were accessing, they were they <laughs> they were able to they were able to um, you know learn things and have discussions about like complex topics. Um, and look, I mean, you can go online and read about the stuff like there are all sorts of criticisms and things leveled at it but the point is that when you remove the illusions around how you should go about developing your intellect or learning or or finding a job or not finding a job or and and you just allow your innate brilliance to run free you suddenly on a lightning path to realizing the art of the possible. And I think what's so lovely about your story and so inspiring is through just sheer joy of doing and being present to what was on offer, you got on a lightning path so so young and you've stayed on it for your entire career and you're a happy dude and there are a lot of your peers who are fucking miserable and they 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 probably knew what the lightning path was and they waved goodbye as they went on a parallel or divergent track and and they're wondering how to get back there <laughs> if they saw it at all and it's just it's it's so refreshing and it's so wonderful because you 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 just you're pointing to what the art of the possible is when you when you don't subscribe to the bullshit and the illusion
So thank you. Yeah. I guess there's a here, I'm going to add something interesting here, or at least interesting to me. The, the art of the possible, uh, and, and I guess what I'm going to, I'm going to label it as curiosity. I think curiosity is definitely key here. I think one of the challenging things about, you mentioned obviously being fortunate to be able to maintain that level of curiosity throughout my life. It's much harder though, I believe as, as time goes on. I think a lot of the, I've been quite aware of it that society starts to push more and more on you as you get older. And, and I love this sort of the norms that people subscribe to just get heavier and heavier. Like they really do. Um, you know, just really big expensive things like you have to buy a house or you have to like have a family at a certain age and stuff or you have to get married. These are all like big, heavy societal norms and they get pushed on you. Like at least when you're a kid, there's obviously like, there's lots of norms. Like you dress this way, you should listen to this kind of music. Um, but when you get older, I, I actually I quite clearly see that they become bigger and heavier and they also get like harder to shift. Like if you do subscribe to one of those norms, you're kind of stuck. Like if you, here's a good one. You decide to, you, you get a car when you're like 17 years old. In the UK, that's quite normal. You get a car. And you then drive places and that's like subscribing to a societal norm, right? Like you don't need a car. You get a car because everyone else has a car. And and the way that kind of the country is designed, you should get a car. Um, I got rid of my car five years ago. That was like a really, really difficult thing to do because you basically had this, this norm that had been ingrained in me for 15 years. It was the way that you did things. People expected you to arrive in a car. You know, like they would give you driving directions to their house without even asking if you're going to drive to their house. And trying to then get rid of that was a really like it's because you're older and bigger and the car is expensive. It's a really big, difficult thing to shift. And I would say that the the kind of learning for me is to always be aware of it, like be conscious of this, because society is like cruel and it kind of pushes these things on you. Um, and it's been great, but so I, w- I would I guess I would caveat that I got rid of the car to save money originally, um, but I ended up being saving money, good for the environment. And good for the curiosity, you know, that we spoke about earlier. I used to go bike rides at like midnight and stuff just because it was nice to be out in the air. Whereas you would never go driving at midnight. That'd be weird. And, uh, and you wouldn't get any benefit at all. Whereas cycling at night sounds nice. Or like I take my daughter to nursery on the back of my bike since she was six months old. She's never been in the car with me to nursery before. She doesn't know any different. And that's great for her because she gets the air. She gets to be outside. None of her friends do it either. So she's obviously seeing things from a different light. She's not having to subscribe to getting in the back of my parents' car and getting clipped in and things to this car seat. So I think it's interesting, but it, the, yeah, the, the kind of societal norms get pushed on you and they become heavier. And if you're not aware, they will just get, you just absorb them. But then on the flip side, you also, if you can push them away, like me pushing the car away, the rewards can be there. Like they're pretty big. And, you know, I, I save a lot of money every month just, just so I not in a car, but it's also just great from other perspectives too. You know, save a lot of money and time, get places a lot quicker as well if you cycle in the city way quicker, which is nice. I can never be late for meetings if I had a bike because you just speed there. Um, you don't have to park, which is good. Um, but yeah, there's, it's all, I find it really interesting. There's like lots of little things just along the way that life takes you and you kind of have to be pushing them back. I mean, obviously you can accept those norms too. I'm not saying they're all bad. And um, there's certain things which which are probably pretty good to accept, but um, just being conscious of them in the first place is is definitely a skill that needs to be worked on. I think. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, it's like the, I think it's what Bill has said as well, isn't it? You have that's the illusion. The illusion, to my mind, is that there's an idea of a societal norm, like you know, and you hear it in language, don't you? Because everyone, because people talk about it as though it's a thing. And, you know, you hear it when people go, well, everyone is doing it. You're like, no, they're not. Everyone has a car. Well, we know now that you and Cameron doesn't have a car because he got rid of it five years ago. And I think we're talking about the difference here between natural and normal. Like the idea of normal is made up. But being natural is what we're talking about. It's just following your own path. And it's... and. It's conditioning and, and normal is conditioning. 
It's not real. It's just conditioning. And unfortunately, it takes real practice. And that's what I hear in what you're saying. It, it takes, you have to be really mindful of practicing uh, the art of following your own path, like listening to yourself and being deeply curious about the idea that there's a uniform way that things should be done. Um, and I guess I'm curious where an if or where um, dyslexia fits into that story, you know, like where, like, because I don't know if it's part of it or not, or how you would say that fits in. Do you, was that a, was that one of the ingredients that allowed you to be more curious? How, do, how does that fit into your story and, and what have you seen there? So I interestingly didn't know that I was dyslexic until I went to university. And so I went through my whole school career, basically just not really enjoying it, being pretty rubbish in exams and stuff. Because I couldn't retain much information, but then I, I couldn't get the information done on paper. And I certainly couldn't get it done on paper as quickly as everyone else in the class. The so school was quite rubbish because of that. It was quite tough. But then when I went to university, I found out I had dyslexia. Didn't really make any difference to me at the time, but what I was really doing a lot of unaware, un, unaware of it was that when you have dyslexia, um, best way to describe dyslexia, if you don't have dyslexia, is to, to just look at a sheet of paper. And when you look at a sheet of paper without dyslexia, you can just read the words. You just go like left to right, left to right, left to right. And it's really clear. You can just do that. But when you have dyslexia in the way that I have it, when you look at a sheet of words, if you don't do anything about it, if you're not intentional, the words just all move around and they just move around all the time. Like they just are, it's like a sea, you know, like a, like a, a kind of a, a gentle sea that's moving all the words around. And so in university, I'm aware of this. It's a bit of a challenge and quite quickly learned like coping mechanisms to, to be able to retain the information despite the fact that it's, is moving around in, my, in all my textbooks, and a lot of the a lot of the coping mechanisms I created were organization, basically. So, taking the information in a massive textbook, you know how they give you these big textbooks in universities. They're for a dyslexic person, that's just like it's not even funny. It's like a complete joke that you're ever going to be able to consume all that information. But what you can do is you can overlay coping mechanisms on top of that textbook. So I started really like early in first year and second year, going through with a highlighter and started to just highlight the pieces of text that were interesting and relevant in the book. So that started to give me, you know, bite-sized chunks of information. I didn't need all the filler words. I started to just pull out bite-sized pieces of information. Then as like the years go on, I'm thinking, fuck, I've got loads of information here. Like there's too much information all bite-sized and highlighted. So then started to categorize and organize it and started to label it. And then by the fourth year, I'm able to take what is quite a chunky book, potentially break that down into key themes, some bite-sized nuggets of stuff that I actually need to remember, removing all of the filler words, and then structuring it in such a way that I can actually grab that information and regurgitate that information in an exam or in a you know dissertation or whatever. So the dyslexia over the course of those four years of university, having known that I have dyslexia, basically allowed me and this is true of, of most dyslexics from the, uh, I've spoken to anyway, is that you, you have to become really good at organizing. You have to become really good at labeling and structuring knowledge. Otherwise, it's really difficult to retain, but then it's also really difficult to present back. And that's one of the reasons that when you have dyslexia, going back to Willow, one of the reasons you have dyslexia and challenges with writing CVs is that a dyslexic person obviously knows all the things about them. You know what their jobs have been. They know all the kind of stuff that they should put in the CV. But they, they really struggle to then get that down on paper. And that's the that's the part that's, that's basically taking unstructured information in your brain and putting that into a structured format. Very difficult to do with dyslexia. And that's it's quite a cruel thing, particularly as you go through your education, to have dyslexia because of that. Because the way that education is designed, it's like read this and retain this and then regurgitate. And all of that is like hard to do when you're dyslexic. So yeah, in, in university like this, the, the early foundations of that were to take information and structure it and then present it back. And then 
that's filtered into to later life where I'm basically organized in everything now. You know, like it's not just the retaining of information, but it's just easier to be organized and labeled for all of the, all the things that are happening in your life. Um, you know, whether that's like going to social events or whether that's ordering the shopping for a week or whatever, it's just so much easier for like a busy brain if you don't have all of that stuff just floating. It needs to be pinned down. Um, there's a lot of overlap there with things like ADHD and things as well, I believe, where there's just a lot of noise. And the brain is obviously just good at making noise, even if you don't have ADHD or dyslexia. It's just That's obviously why meditation is such an amazing tool. Um, and, and a lot of the, the future, you know, after, after going through university and having dyslexia, a lot of the future things I successfully did in work were related to the coping mechanisms of dyslexia being organized and structured and just finding the key information. You know, like if somebody says, go and visit this website, you can, if you're a dyslexic person, read the whole website like, or a Wikipedia page. My favorite example is like Wikipedia because I used to just like churn through Wikipedia articles and take the information that you need and then you can move on to the next one. And that's, like, I learned like loads of random facts about stuff when I was like in my early career and just about stuff in general. Like, everything and the beauty of dyslexia is that you because you're forced to you can extract information really quickly and just hone in on the stuff that's important and you know like for example like filler words like and and the and a and all that kind of stuff they're not relevant to a dyslexic person if you could just like press a button on a book it would just like it would just shrink right down um but all those filler words are obviously there to make a nice story for people that don't have dyslexia to read um but yeah it's, it's an interesting um, I guess disability, if you want to give it a label in itself, in itself, um, where, yeah, re- retaining and then regurgitating information definitely has helped me to, at least in my career, to have that coping mechanism. Does that make sense? I mean, you use the word disability. I'd, I'd say superpower. Um, <laughs> by, by, by your sort of articulation of it. Um, the one the one thing I love about Willow and what you've created and the way in which you're changing the world uh, is you're, you're consciously or unconsciously for the HR professional or the you know the people professional or the the talent professional, you're helping them remove unconscious bias. And, and I mean, you mentioned it right at the top of the, 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 the podcast, you know, you said, oh, a, a name that I can pronounce, you know, and it, it's, it's funny, like you, you see the, the word Muhammad or Kwame on the top of a resume and, and you don't even know why you're having a nosebleed, but you're having a nosebleed and, and it's, it's, and I think what Willow does so beautifully is it creates this human connection where somebody's name, the color of their skin, their culture, their creed, their ethnicity, their religion, all is is very real, but it it it's no longer subject to judgment and 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 bias. And and it allows you to be curious. And you used the word curious earlier. And we've said it so many times on this podcast series. You know, the opposite of curiosity in our minds is judgment. And and so when when you see a, a, a beautiful, amazing human being on the other side of a screen and you're able to interact with them and have this connection and you curious about you're authentically curious about each other and the candidate, then all that other nonsense, all the other illusions and the labels that we have, you know, become so used to uh, applying as, as conscious and unconscious filters, those all disappear. And, and then the, the essence of what you were, probably authentically and and intentionally seeking to create from the outset when you went on this 
talent hunt, that 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 truth and that essence is allowed to emerge and be realized. Uh, and it's such a simple but genius mechanism for it. And so I don't know, like like that's my interpretation of it. Like m- maybe I'm I'm being overly romantic of of the notion, but but I, I'm just curious, like having having struggled, um, but also beautifully seen what you saw about your own dyslexia. Did you did that sort of factor in when you? When, when you thought about Willow and the ability to, to blow up bias and, and judgment uh, and, and in, the, uh, in the hope of creating something special and, and, and something quite different. Yeah, great, great point. I like that. And it, well, it relates, I suppose, back to what we spoke about earlier as well around you know, expected norms. A lot of the... A lot of the things that we're looking for in a CV are norms. You're looking for certain ticks, aren't you? When you go through a CV, you're conditioned to look for certain triggers or flags. And they're either red flags or they're green flags. And you're just looking for those red or green flags. And that's unfortunately just a result of the CV. Like it's, it's not the CV's fault. It's just what we've been given. And we have to just, we just use it as a currency. You know, CV has been around since 1950 is when it's really been globally used. And it's probably, it's, it predates that, but it really officially, uh, 1950s. And we've just been given this thing and we have to do something with it. It's hard to be curious when you're just given a sheet of paper with black and white characters on it. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I guess I don't blame anyone for using the CV. I think that's, that's, important i think the the cv is just a currency we've been given it and we have to like look for these things because also if you, if you didn't look for the red and green flags what are you looking for like you can't you can't really do much with a piece of paper with some words on it you can't be curious there's not really there's no depth there you're not looking anywhere else um whereas what we're doing and i, I don't think it's romantic because it's actually true what we're doing is is actually exactly what you described there which is really cool um, where there is depth. Suddenly, this candidate records three videos and sends you these three videos. And they talk about whatever they want to talk about. They might talk about their passions, their childhood, their dyslexia, for example. These are just things you don't put in a CV. <laughs> but they're things that are really important. And that's the depth that you miss out on when you're in the CV mode, um, which is exciting to see. And it also, it feeds into something that I think is fascinating, which we talked about earlier, which was there's a big world out there and there's a lot of people in the world and they're all different. And, you know, for example, you, you said there, oh, we all drive cars. And it's like entire countries don't drive cars. Like still, like the majority of most countries don't drive cars. But we have like this like very <laughs> like funny like vision of like this tunnel vision that oh, everyone in the world drives a car, but they don't. Just And that's obviously the beauty of, of what we've created at Willow is that you have the opportunity sitting wherever you're sitting today to see people over there and out there in a completely different light. And they don't have to trade CVs to see them. They just trade videos, which is basically the most in-depth version of them without meeting them face-to-face. And it's really fun from the from the other side of things as well. Obviously, it's great from a candidate perspective because they get to, to be themselves and... and give you that information that you wouldn't otherwise be giving. Like I would never put, for example, that I'm dyslexic in a CV. It'd be a really strange thing to do because it would be immediately red flag bin. Whereas you can talk about dyslexia in a video because as I just mentioned there, it's, it's allowed me to do these things differently. Like for example, we organize and, and retain and regurgitate information. And that's exciting um, from, a, from a recruiter perspective as well because they suddenly get all that extra depth and color, and they get to consume it in a really fun way as well. Nobody likes reading a CV. There's literally no one out there mm-hmm. that likes reading CVs, but people love consuming real video content of real people. But it's also funny, you know, like one. I think one of the the the, the killers 
the talent killers is this whole concept of what university did you go to? And, you know, like Al and I had the good fortune of working for a company where the two founders never went to university, like Peter Bauer and Neil Murray, who founded Mimecast, like never went to university. Um, and, and, and so when we were recruiting people in the early days, it was like, hey, are, are you dumb enough and hungry enough to join this mad crew and we don't really give a shit what your background is like come and come and have some fun and you know and and if you if you if you if you sound like you are hungry enough and smart enough like let's let's have some fun together and that for me like that went and I eventually you know and Al was the same like eventually we were pretty senior dudes recruiting a lot of people. I mean, I had 350 people in, in the global customer operations uh, org that I ran. I don't think I looked at anybody's CV. Um, and that's probably a terrible thing to admit, but I I was more interested in the person. I like, I, I never, and I certainly didn't look at their, their college degree. And, and what people don't realize is like, as we sit here, a third of the Fortune 500 CEOs have have an MBA because like there's this bullshit myth out there and we can blow that one up as well that oh you have to have an MBA in order to run a company what a load of crap that is and then there's and then there's the you know the other stat which is only 75% of Fortune 500 CEOs went to university so that's like 125 CEOs of like the top companies in the world <laughs> never went to university. And so, you know, to sit there and go, oh, well, sorry, you didn't go to Carnegie Mellon, so you can't be a, 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 a data scientist in our, in our emerging tech org. It's like, are you out of your mind? And so, you know, like, I, I think Willow is just like blowing that stuff sky high. And I, I, I love it. I love it. And just to chip in on that, like I, and there's something that I would love to blow up, which you, we talked about human connection. And Bill, as you said, you know, maybe it's a romantic notion. And uh, I think, I, I think we've got to blow up the idea that human connection is a romantic notion in business. It's like human connections are freaking competitive advantage. Amen. And Amen. I would bet, and I, like, and you and I'm, I, I would imagine that you guys have got stats that show that people who are utilizing the, the Willow platform are probably hiring faster. They're probably having increased success rates. Like, it's not just a, you should do this because it's a nice thing to do. It's like, do this because it's gonna, it works better. It, it, it actually pays to put human connection uh, at the top level, um, it, it pays. It's a competitive advantage. And I'm just curious, like, are there, do you guys see any stats? And, and like, I mean, like, as you guys look at all the, the people that you're assisting across the planet, like, wh what, what can you do to demonstrate that human connection, it, it, it kind of pays off? Absolutely. Great point. Biggest biggest thing that I can point to, which is exciting, is the teams that use Willow are more diverse, immediately more diverse. And the reason they're more diverse is that when you're reviewing CVs, the only things that you can go on are things like their name, their location, their education. And when you're basing all your decisions on a few pointers, there only is so much that you can go on and it end up, ends up every candidate looks the same. Whereas when you're looking at videos, every single video is different and you're looking at every single person in a completely different light. And that ends up, thankfully, in resulting in more diverse teams. The teams that are more diverse, as we all know, when they generate more revenue, they're happier, they're more interesting as well. I'm speaking specifically from Willow as an example. We have colleagues from across three countries. All of our team have different backgrounds, different experiences. We're all different ages. And what's really cool about that is that we can all share different insights. We have different norms 
we want to call it that still. And that's exciting because everyone can hear different things. And I think it's, it's, it's quite intangible. Um, a lot of the stuff, so we don't have necessarily stats, but the teams that are more diverse just win on, on all fronts. And you can do that successfully through mediums like Willow. You can't do that with paper-based mediums, particularly when you're based on CDs within a certain region. Imagine if you if you only hire within you know the, the Manchester region, you're only going to get a certain type of person just because that region only has a certain type of person in it. Um, you're you're limiting that massively. Whereas you go global, you invite videos, the diversity just explodes, and that's so cool to see. Oh. Um, you know, like I think we could. Uh, I'm conscious. I can't believe we're, we're, we've been chatting for an hour, and so uh, we've not even got onto the, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, which is how you go year to year. So we'll have to have you back on again. But I'm conscious that we're coming up against the end of our time. We have a tradition. You might have picked it up on previous podcasts or not, which is um, to ask what would be the bumper sticker for life that you would create if you got the opportunity? Um, so my, my bumper sticker for life is trust your head, your heart, and your gut. And this is uh, this is something that we... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Diana Chapman. Diana Chapman, um, big on conscious leadership. And... Diana Chapman talks about the whole body, yes. And the whole body, yes, is when your head, your heart, and your gut all say yes, then you have to go for it. And it's it's such a cool thing because we, we play about with it all the time in, in Willow where if you make a decision, then it's not a whole body, yes. It doesn't, it doesn't normally work out. <laughs> we can like look back at it and actually validate that. Whereas when you make a decision and it's a whole body, yes, it always works out. And it's so cool to use those tools. So yeah, listen to your head, your heart, and your gut. If they all say yes, go for it. It's way, the, the head, heart, and gut is way, way smarter than just your head on its own. That's a doozy. Love that. Yeah, that's a good one. And and like you said, you know, the 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 head tends to be the, this noisy uh, distraction um, more often than not. So yeah. That's a, I also, that's yeah, a great one. The head, the head's interesting as well because the head is affected by a lot of your surroundings. Your heart and your gut are mm. way more consistent. Like if you're tired, your head's tired, but your heart and your gut don't get tired. And that's that's why it's powerful, right? It, it tends to cut through a lot of the, the day-to-day shit. Uh, so yeah, use your head, your heart, your gut. Brilliant. Um, Ewan, thank you so much. Like uh, I... I find I personally find your stories so incredibly inspirational. It's got me thinking with my boys how to make sure that I'm freaking blowing up normal every day because I'm, yeah. I'm I'm laughing at the idea that I'm going to say to my 17 year old boy now. Do you know you don't actually need that car? And I'm pretty sure he'd be like, "Screw you!" and "Screw you!" and Cameron. I do need my car. He's talking nonsense, but uh, <laughs> I, I've got to go and and blow those up. But genuinely, thank you so much. Been so insightful, so inspirational, and uh, really appreciate you sharing. It's uh, it's been very cool. Yeah. No, it's fun. I've, uh, I've really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for having me on. Below, as I let you close us out. Yeah, thanks, uh, Al. Thanks, Ian. Um, so lovely uh, to have you on the podcast. Uh, I hope you come back. Um, uh, we are obviously big fans of Willow and uh, and what you're doing in the world. And you are making the world a far better place for so many beautifully talented uh, and innately brilliant human beings who who just want a job um, and and in many instances have been excluded uh, from that opportunity because of you know no fault of their own their their, their name the color of their skin the, the 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 university they did or didn't go to um, and so uh, I think it's it's a, it's amazing, and and you are you are creating a, a seedbed for an inclusive mindset, um, and you're you're bringing a diversity to the workplace um, in a in a very powerful way through a, a very elegant 
uh, tool and you're creating amazing human connections, which at the end of the day, as Al said, I mean, let's blow up the illusion. Like, you, you know, without, without that connection and that trust and that innate love, like none of these companies would be anywhere. So, yeah, just brilliant having you here and love your work and uh, can't, can't, uh, can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, folks. That was a lot of fun. Um, definitely. Thank you. Awesome. All right, folks, that's a wrap for today, for this week. I um, uh, hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. As always, please uh, share any questions, feedback, comments, like and subscribe wherever you're listening. And uh, we will be with you again next week. Until then, keep living into your brilliance. Thank you for joining us on this enlightening journey, unraveling the innate brilliance within every human being. We hope today's episode has sparked new thoughts and inspired fresh perspectives. Remember, the power to shatter illusions and unleash your true potential lies within you. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on your favorite platform. If you'd like more insights and daily doses of inspiration, you can follow me on Instagram at alkennycoaching. Or you can connect with myself and Mark on LinkedIn, uh, where we will share articles and perspectives about unlocking your innate brilliance. Remember, you are capable of extraordinary things. Keep believing, keep exploring, and keep shining brightly. Take care and stay brilliant.